I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. So welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. I'm Rebecca. And today we're going to be going through an article that Rebecca found by a woman. How did, how did you get uh, connected with Karen Swallow Pryor? I believe that I got connected with her initially by reading her book on Hannah Moore, the um, okay. early abolitionist in England. English okay. abolitionist around the time. Well, she was friends with William Wilberforce, so okay. she wrote an excellent biography on her. I highly recommend. It's called um, "Fierce Convictions." Okay, and um, so that's how I first heard about her. Didn't you say something at one point about her having some thoughts on Jane Eyre? For some reason, I thought you said something. That she oh, had you know, written. she wrote a she wrote an article about Jane Eyre, I believe. Yeah, very okay, a very good one. Yeah, okay. maybe we should link it up. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll do that. We'll put that in the in the podcast. Just in case people aren't aware, if you uh, go to those uh, show notes, it says show notes in the little player. It should be the little button that's to the furthest left. Anytime we mention a resource on Mama Bear Apologetics, we include it in the people mentioned in resources uh, yeah. tab. So that way you don't have to be scrambling to take notes and writing down Every single person that we mention, we actually provide links to that. Just there's a lot of people who still don't know that our podcast has that. So just in case you aren't aware, we do that. There's nothing so annoying as listening to a podcast and they mention something really quickly and you're in your car and you think, oh, and you're trying to write it down. Anyway. See, so. and I figured that most, you know, if, if we're catering to moms, we're probably catering to women who are doing this while they're driving. On I don't the want go. them to have to record all the, you know, if we have a quote, we'll have the quotes listed. Hopefully, if there's some unfamiliar vocabulary, a book. Uh, we might include mm-hmm. that. What'd you say? A book. We might mention a book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A book, an article, um, all those different things. So anyway, so today's article is by Karen Swallow Pryor, and it's called how to love your ideological enemy and i think this was it's such an excellent choice for us right now Mm -hmm. especially with the climate that's going on in america right now we are just so polarized as a nation Mm -hmm. it's it's actually been um kind of getting me down the last couple days it's like sometimes i i just want to swear off of facebook just because i just see the, all, all the media because that's where I, i get a lot of my media stuff is from facebook um i don't think I could handle some of the straight no. news sources. Yeah. It's just like negativity hour. the whole time. Yeah. You know, at least Facebook gets interspersed with, you know, pictures of people on vacation and stuff. I don't and, have to have. And cats. And, cat and cats, you know. Especially if you're friends with me. Really why, <laughs> you know, Al Gore invented the internet is so that we could have cat videos. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> so just this idea of ideological enemies. So, you know, we're called in scripture to love our enemies. So Rebecca, how would you describe an ideological enemy or does or does Karen do a good job explaining that in the article? I think she does, but I think we all know. <laughs> <laughs> I think our culture is so polarized today in so many areas. It's it's the person that disagrees with you on the deepest issues of life or what seem like the deepest deepest issues. Oftentimes, actually, you, you will find that you agree with them more than you realize. But um, especially when we're dealing with this in the political realm, 
but just how we define the world and how we define life and especially as Christians how we look at the world and especially in regards to morality yeah um, we are living in a culture that whose morals is are, are very different from Christian value Christian yeah. morals so um, a lot of people are going to be different for us from us on this yeah and I think kind of one of the reasons because I know that I sometimes do this there's excuse me there's a uh, a word in here that I kind of want to define before we start into it, and it's echo chamber. Um, <laughs> the idea of an echo chamber is that you are only associating people with people who agree with you. It's kind of like, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. You know, all the yeah. people who are going to agree with what you say, and all you hear is affirmations. And that is one of those things that's really easy to do, because how many times has it been where um, I hear, where I, I see some, you know, because I have a lot of apologist friends, and somebody will post and they're like, well, I just got blocked by another person for this comment. And it's some like really benign comment. Sometimes it's, I'm like, okay, it's not so was, benign. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's not so benign. But there's sometimes when I'm like, how in the world did that get you blocked? So it's like Facebook is even like that to where if, if you don't like what someone has to say, then you just, boop, you just, you know, I don't want to see anything by this person. And so we've just like uh, re well, and uh, there's a whole, that there's this whole controversy about the algorithms that Facebook uses to um, display. Mm. And what wasn't there some controversy that they were sort of, sort of making sure that your Facebook experience was happy. So they were showing things that you would agree with. They figured it out somehow. And I don't know. I, yeah, I saw someone making a comment this this week saying like that they liked Facebook before the algorithms came out. So I know that there is a controversy on that, but yeah, I don't want to go in too much into that. So, but without further ado, let's just uh, go into this article because okay. I think it's a really well done article and I'm really thankful that you brought this to my attention. So, Well, I'm no. really thankful for Karen Pryor. Um, I'm, yes. a fa- I'm a Facebook friend of hers and um, I recommend following her um, because she does interact with a lot of people within the church and outside the church that disagree with her and she does, she is a model mm. of how to do it. So, well, not to toot, you know, your horn. I guess I can toot your horn. Um, I think you're really good with this, personally. Well, I've, I've if I am, I've, I've learned through a lot of hard knocks, <laughs> a lot of mistakes and having to apologize and being convicted yeah. by the Holy Spirit and going back yeah. and having to say, oh, I'm so sorry. because I know. You're always your own worst critic. But then again, I'm my own worst critic. A lot of times we're all our own worst critics so you you criticize yourself a lot but I see you do so well at this so I just want you to know that I think that (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh here we go um how to love your ideological enemy so take it away okay well so the subtitle is if hospitality is a model for discipleship then we need both open doors and clear boundaries and I Mm. love that and she's gonna go she's gonna go into that that's like one of those powerful sentences that you can just sit and think about for a while yeah um and she's gonna expand on that here So she writes, I often receive messages from people who hold to historic church teachings, but are increasingly, increasingly uncertain about how to share these beliefs openly in a cultural climate that's increasingly hostile to them. Mm -hmm. One woman, for example, wrote that she wants to maintain the message of Christ's love and grace mingled with the truth that is so important not to withhold, but finds it hard to do so among diverse friends. Another shared that she hesitates more and more to speak out for fear of being seen as, quote, negative and hateful. Truth be told, I feel these struggles myself on most days. 
it is not easy, for example, to tell someone I love dearly that I cannot attend his wedding because my love for him compels me not to pretend that marriage is something other than what God created it to be. Nor is it easy in a world so defined by a Gnostic dichotomy between spiritual and physical to insist that the incarnation and the resurrection, God becoming man and dwelling among us, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, are facts as true as a law of gravity. Yet the Bible exhorts Christians to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. We are obligated to emulate the example of Jesus who balanced in beautiful harmony the demands of both love and truth. Those of us concerned with not abandoning truth as we speak in love find the cultural waters today increasingly difficult to navigate. Yep. Contemporary Christian discipleship in particular poses new challenges. A few months ago, one of my former students contacted me to express her concern about the state of women's discipleship specifically and her desire to practice more discernment about the women leaders she follows. Because as we know, there are a lot of women leaders that have just gone in all kinds of directions. (laughs) Yeah, we've, we've seen kind of like in the last couple of months or maybe just this last year or so, we've seen several women leaders that people held up as, you know, oh, you know, they're so amazing and just completely derail and just in some areas yeah definitely yeah 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 in some areas not in every area um so she said some she said some of these women leaders are about all the feels rather than rooted in truth she continued as a woman i feel that we are particularly vulnerable right now because our culture is targeting us politically and spiritually yes we're a whole demographic right Mm -hmm. (laughs) whole voting (laughs) block our votes, support, and opinions are being battled for. So there's like a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of sort of advertising and stuff that's trying to reach us. And I, I think um, I was actually writing about this tonight before you and I got on for the podcast. And it was just the idea of looking at how advertising has changed throughout mm-hmm. the years. Because there was a, a class that I took in undergrad where we looked at the advertising from, from the last hundred years or so. Hmm. And how much of it has changed from... Uh, marketers and advertisers trying to convince you that their product is superior for X, Y, and Z reasons. And now advertising is all about trying to basically get you to just associate a feeling with their product. (laughs) Yeah. And there is very little substance, very little of reasons why we should trust this product. And like one of my favorite series is they actually spoof themselves in doing this and that's the old spice commercials oh no have you seen the old spice commercials you know i totally remember them yes oh my gosh (laughs) and and because i mean that's essentially what they're showing how ridiculous advertising is look i'm on a horse and blah 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 you know look how manly i am trying to associate manliness with old spice they're trying to be the most popular kid or advertiser on the block Mm -hmm. Well, I like what they do because it's like they're making fun of what advertisers are all doing for real, but they're taking it to like a satirical level. And so I think in general, like I can trace this back to one predominant problem. I sat there and I thought, why is this the kind of advertising that we're doing or that we're seeing right now? And I think the problem is that we in the Western world have forgotten how to think Hmm. And so advertising that engages the mind will miss most of your consumers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is okay. such a sad statement to make. But I think that women, I think we were created um, very more, a little bit more sensitive than our warrior men, of course. And this isn't every woman. There's some, some women out there who are the exact opposite, and that's totally fine. I 
sometimes can fall more. Actually, it was before I was married, I kind of fell more in that category. I shut off all my emotions and just scorned the women who were like that. And it, mm. it wasn't until I got married that I felt the Lord released me back into femininity that I was able to start embracing all those emotions. But I think that because our society is moving in that direction, it's actually being catered more towards women in that sense. Because mm-hmm. um, that's how we naturally operate. And it's something that we have to purposefully, ah, oh, golly, I, we don't want to reject it like I used to do back when I was younger. But at the same time, we need to discipline that area of yeah. ourselves. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So it says, now we are witnessing some of these battles over truth and orthodoxy is being lost. Um, while there is some debate about the precise definition, orthodox Christian belief consists of sound doctrine derived from a faithful reading of scripture and informed by millennia, by the millennia long history of biblical interpretation, the witness of the early church, and the creeds. As I survey the lines demarcating Christian belief, I wonder if some of those who have drifted over to heterodoxy, both men and women, might have stayed with us if the contemporary church were better at a particularly powerful form of discipleship. And she calls that hospitable um, orthodoxy. So just just, uh, real quick to define orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. Orthodoxy is uh, accepted beliefs, accepted Christian beliefs that have, you know, we had um, different heresies, which are, heresies are against orthodox beliefs that are deviate from scripture. Heterodox, hetero means different, um, and that a heterodox belief would be incorporating these different beliefs Mm -hmm. that the church has not agreed in. So an idea of a heterodox belief is saying something like, Jesus was not fully God Mm, or Jesus mm -hmm. was not divine. So a heterodox belief isn't necessarily saying I do or don't believe in speaking in tongues or something like that. There's things that are within orthodoxy. The core issues are core versus peripheral issues. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's things that Christians differ on that are all still in orthodoxy. And then there's certain things that if you step outside of this, you are now heterodox. You are not orthodox. So I just wanted to explain that terminology real quick. Okay, well, so this next uh, paragraph is fascinating. I love um, etymology and looking at how words were derived. But it said, hospitality comes from the same Latin root word from which we get both guest and host. Host refers not only to one who receives a guest, but also to an army or multitude, right? We have the Lord of hosts. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, yeah, which is why the word hostile comes from the same root as host. And the Latin word for host also means um, enemy. The hinge that joins all of these words, guest, host, enemy, hostile, which are all pretty different words, yeah. um, hospitality, and even hos- hospital is stranger. That's the hinge. A stranger could be a guest or a host, and either could be an enemy. In this way, hospitality, given or received, always entails risk and exposure. Ooh, that's good. I think this is so key because I mm-hmm. think behind so much of our inability to love our neighbor and mm-hmm. love our ideological enemy is fear. Mm. And I, I have the verse um, that I, is just, I'm very sensitive to fear because I've struggled with it all my life. I think I've said before that I used to have horrible nightmares as a child and I've gone through times of anxiety. And so I just hate fear and I want to learn what is healthy fear, what's unhealthy fear. Well, one of the big things, one of the verses that has always been really strong for me, really um, helpful, is from 1 John four eighteen, And it said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
and just that, the, the, okay. just those few words, perfect love casts out fear. And just the idea that we cannot love someone if we're afraid of them. And I see this mm. so much in this whole debate over the immigrants coming in. There's so uh, much fear and um, there's unhealthy fear or, you know, or illegal aliens, there's unhealthy fear. Mm-hmm. And so trying to learn what is healthy, what is unhealthy. And, and how is my fear keeping me from loving someone? Yeah. Just to be um, clear, there is there is healthy and unhealthy fear there. It's not just... Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid of jumping off a 10-foot building, you know, because there's a healthy fear. There's rational fear. But mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking unhealthy fear. So, and, um, well, we get, we'll get to this in a little bit, I think. So, okay. how, um, so anyone who has been a guest or a host understands that vulnerability is involved. Which you were mentioning before that you used to have a hard time with uh, hospitality because you were so worried about just not everything being perfect. And yeah, I don't know, maybe Lee's chilled you out and he's like, it's all good. <laughs> well, I think I also was just going through a time of anxiety and um, just very, I had fear has this kind of snowball effect where you're afraid of one thing and then all of a sudden just all these other things sort of latch on so I was just struggling with depression and anxiety myself but um just the idea of of yeah having all these people in my home it was just overwhelming to me yeah um and you felt vulnerable I I I felt very vulnerable and judged um Mm -hmm. and I don't know God I I just laugh because I'm like God just gave me the gift of hospitality because when I got freed from that, I was freed to have people in my home and freed to love people in a way that I wasn't before. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, so there's vulnerability. So she says, my husband and I are blessed to host many visitors in our old rural homestead. Like most places, ours has a few eccentric house rules, particularly particular to our lifestyle, including if you don't want the dogs near you, then stay off the furniture. And I <laughs> laughed at that because I'm like, that's ours too. If you don't want the cats near you, then don't sit down. And especially yeah. if you're not a cat person, because cats always just... They can pick the person who's allergic they are magnets for the cats. Oh my gosh. Anyway, another is that guests are welcome to bring as many friends as they want and stay as long as they like, but I can't cook for them. Oh, and yet, that's a good rule. Yeah. And yet, despite my lack of culinary skills and the awkward proximity of dog paws and snouts, which sounds wonderful to me. I love dogs. <laughs> I have to get my dog fixes elsewhere. I know, me too. <laughs> Our friends and family and even, few, and even few strangers seem to feel welcomed and refreshed by our peaceful little plot nestled in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I think I want to go visit her. <laughs> Maybe Thank you about we'll hospitality. pop in one day, just be like, yeah, we read your article. Surprise, we're here. We'll we did a podcast. Yeah. We brought we uh, we brought groceries. We'll cook. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thinking about hospitality in this more little literal sense is helpful in considering how we, as members of the house of God, bear some responsibility for protecting the doctrinal boundaries of faith and also inviting others into that well-defined place. Oh, mm. well-defined. I love this. I, okay. <laughs> A Chesterton quote alights into my brain. Oh, really? <laughs> of course. But there's this idea that Chesterton has in The Everlasting Man of um, about, you know, the laws of God. And many of the times we can look at them and we, we can see them that they are actually just another example of one of those kinds of limitations, he calls them, that do in fact preserve and perpetuate enlargement, like a wall hmm. built around a wide open space. And I like the idea of, 
um, the boundaries are, are things that turn a nowhere or an anywhere into a somewhere. Mm, and that's it, a cool. Did he say that or did you say no, that? No, I said that. That's good. Because that's it's like, like you don't invite you. someone to your house and, you know, just let them in your backyard. No, you have the boundaries of your house, the walls. Or the master bedroom. That's usually like the one place that, unless you have like multiple yeah. bathrooms, like you just don't go into someone's master bedroom and start rifling through their medicine cabinet. Yeah, those are some boundary conditions that you have that, um, that are just recognized and respected. Um, yeah. Um, well, I think of like the, the quote that you read by Chesterton reminds me of just the, you know, Psalm 23. I've always thought it was mm-hmm. thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The, both of those things are, I don't know how you would phrase that, those, the enforcers of boundaries. Mm-hmm. When With the sheep. sheep is walking somewhere where it's not supposed to be, the rod and the staff, whack, you know, mm-hmm. get them back off of that path and onto the correct path. And so this idea of no boundaries is is the most hospitable that's not true there there is i like this this i'm going to read this statement again that she says just because i think it's so good uh thinking about hospitality in this more literal sense is helpful in considering how we as members of the house of god bear some responsibility for protecting the doctrinal boundaries of faith and also inviting others into that well-defined place i mean that's such a good way to put it and when we define some when we invite someone in that doesn't agree with us mm-hmm. in some areas. We don't make our house uncomfortable for them, right? Mm-hmm. We make it comfortable, but we still, it's our house and it has boundary conditions. We might say, uh, please don't go back there. That's the messy room. I think of like the TV show Friends, how Monica had that closet that no one was allowed to <laughs> to open because she was like total neat freak except for that closet. Oh, so, how funny. It's like, you just kind of nicely say, um, you know, don't go in there. Mm-hmm. I guess and it's like, yeah, you don't make the house uncomfortable. You don't turn the heat up until they feel like they have to leave. <laughs> yeah. And what I love about this article, too, it's just basic etiquette that I think our culture has lost. Yeah. The- I think maybe sometimes people are afraid to welcome the ideological enemy is that people have forgotten what those boundaries are, that they have yeah. people coming over that start, you know, going through their garbage and going through their medicine cabinet and then looking under the bed. And it's like, at some point, you're just like, maybe I won't invite people over anymore unless I know them. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically here. But anyway, yeah, she has five five distinct uh, tips that she gives here on how to love your ideological enemy. Yeah, so she says, number one, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy welcome the seeker and stranger. They do not read, follow, or speak to only the like-minded. They Mm. do not operate in an echo chamber. So she says, for many years, I've intentionally pursued conversation with those with whom I deeply disagree, both believers and unbelievers. Some, afraid perhaps of their own temptation to compromise, question and criticize this. I understand that. I've had that too. But the practice merely follows the example of Christ. As Mm. Natasha Sistrunk Robinson said in her recent interview, it is sacred to it is a sacred act to learn to see, honor, and love our neighbors. Furthermore, the Bible cautions in Proverbs 18:1 that those who isolate themselves seek only their own desires breaking out against all sound judgment. Any so-called orthodoxy that avoids the cornucopia of God's image bearers isn't orthodoxy. It's a cult. And I feel so strongly about this. Yep. Um, Well, you've been in a cult, basically, haven't you? I've been in a cult, well, a cultish, definitely a cultish church. And I think we can all be this way. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this you'll even see this happening within Orthodox 
parts of Christianity where people will be, they don't want to hear anything that opposes that. They don't want, it's like they just shut down all conversation. It's like, it's the difference between, I think some people attribute heterodoxy to things that are within orthodox belief, but they are so unaware of the history within Christianity, recognize, you know what, there's been orthodox believers. This is within orthodoxy. This is not a dividing issue. Well, that's where we become like the Pharisees, right? And we have multiple Mm -hmm. examples in the Bible, um, especially in the Old Testament, of um, God using other nations to rebuke the nation of Israel. We've got Habakkuk and the Chaldeans. We have Jonah and the... um, First, the sailors that in the boat mm. that they were with, he was in, and also the um, the Ninevites. Ninevites. Yeah. yeah, so those are at least two examples. And, um, you know, even the Proverbs themselves, I was just reading in a book today for one of my classes, even the Proverbs themselves use the wisdom of secular wisdom of its day. Mm. It's doesn't re- it refers to secular wisdom of its day and it that's incorporated in our own scripture. So it is not as if only we have wisdom. Mm. I think God can actually use non-believers to rebuke us and to show us things that we can't see from our vantage point. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's that's one of the things that I've said um, on a regular basis is there is no Christian so orthodox that we won't get a piece of heresy from them at one point, and there is no (laughs) atheist so bad that we can't learn something from them. Oh, my goodness, yes. The image bearers, like she said, we all have the image of God in us, and um, that's charity. That's just having a sort of heart of charity. I have this quote from C.S. Lewis. He uses this idea... Um, in his book on literary criticism. He calls it the experiment in criticism, but um, I call it an experiment in charity. We take (laughs) charity into our relationships. We take charity into the arts and in literary arts. So he said that why we approach people in this way is that we seek an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. We want to escape the illusions of perspective on higher levels. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts as well as our own. Anyway, it's it's the sort of thing that helps us, this kind of love for our neighbor helps us escape ourselves and see the world through their eyes. It has to start with this sort of, this sort of hospitality. Yeah. Um, And be able to listen. Ideological hospitality. Yeah. And I will, I will say I had a, a, conversation with a friend this week that is an atheist and one of the things she said we just atheists just want you to listen mm-hmm. and when I thought about that I thought yeah how much how many times do we as Christians really listen to atheists mm-hmm. I don't I don't think we do and how, how how many times do we listen to our ideological enemy we just want to sit and figure out everywhere they're we we, we don't view them as a person all of a sudden we view them as these ideas and we just want to shoot down everything that's wrong yeah, uh, were you were you with me at the apologetics conference when um, Sean McDowell did the thing where he like played the part of an atheist? Uh, yeah, I remember that. Oh my gosh, it was like it was like I mean, not quite as bad as like the Stanford Prison Experiment or the uh, Milgram Experiment, but just to see people going into that role playing mm-hmm. and just like they were trying to entrap him and mm-hmm. just the way that they, and I was thinking. This really is what I see sometimes um, between the Christians and the atheists out in the greater ideological arena, mm-hmm. shall we say, is it's just trying to go for entrapment. How can I trap them in something that they're saying that's wrong? Yeah, and, and our, our, it just this feeling that we have to correct them 
Mm. Or we have to let them know that we disagree constantly. Because somehow our honor is at stake or something. And it's like, you know, why? Why do we feel like we have to do that? There's a word that you used back in our podcast, the one on, um, what was the name of it? That uh, dealing with hostile doubters, was Mm -hmm. that? Um, Mm -hmm. And the word was absorb. Yeah. That a lot of times that, uh, and especially with dealing uh, with, with atheists, that you're dealing with basically all the hurt that they've experienced at the hands maybe of Christians basically for their whole lives. And that's what you're entering. And sometimes yeah. when we enter into that relationship, we first have to just absorb yeah. um, a lot of stuff that they throw at us. And um, that's part of part of being like Christ and part of imitating Christ. You think of how many insults he absorbed on yeah. his way to the cross. Yes. And that is part of partaking in the sufferings of Christ. But when it comes to relationships where you're cultivating that one-on-one relationship, I think that 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 mm. um, in, in building that relationship, that absorption is... Anyway, does that make sense just to like have a balance? Yeah, there? I think it's complex. Yeah. It's I very it's complex. Very complex. And it, 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 did, it just really is situation dependent. But just this idea that this might be a situation where you might need to just absorb and listen and mm-hmm. grieve with person. Because a lot of times when you hear what they've been through... I'm angry too, you know, and I'm I'm upset. And I'm like, yeah, I would be grieving too. So just this idea of being willing to go out and listen to people that disagree with you and really, Mm -hmm. truly listen. Do you remember that book, Blue Like Jazz? Yes. It came out probably when we were in college. I never read it, but it's um, on my to-read list. Yeah, I just, there's there's a section in there where he talks about how they set up confession booths and then like instead of, you know, having people confess, they were like confessing all the things that the church had done and then listening to... Um, the grievances that were brought against the church. And so mm-hmm. there, there, there's something healthy in that, especially if it catches people off guard and they're not used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so we're, we're going to go forever if we don't get back to the article. <laughs> okay, so number two, those who practice hospitable orthodoxy are rooted in relationship. And I love this because right doctrine is not disembodied from the love of actual people. Because in notice, this, oh, how she do, notice how she doesn't dismiss right doctrine no which is the opposite that some people do that they say well the solution to this kind of like the um the the progressive podcast that we did the solution is to have no doctrine right and just go on your okay well so when you have no okay this is why i think of it what is doctrine doctrine Mm -hmm. is describing god well, when you get rid of doctrine, you get rid of God, right? <laughs> when you have no doctrine, you have this boundless God, right? There has to be boundaries to define him. Now, can we ultimately define him? No, because he's infinite. But it's not like that we can't, it's not like we we have to have something we can relate to. We can at least go on what he's said about himself. And we have Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we, we have these two extremes where we have these people that are just all doctrine and then there's no person. Mm-hmm. And then we have this all person and there's no doctrine. It's both. Mm-hmm. And yes. so we have this doctrine that describes a person. So it's ultimately relational. So mm-hmm. you can have all the right doctrine. And then when you're pounding people over the head with it, it's like you're taking Jesus and hitting people over the head with Jesus. Oh, and, yeah. You know, it's, you can't do that. So they're no. not going to love him that way. So, yeah. so while the truth of God is unchanging, the application of that truth always involves real and imperfect people. Amen. As evangelicals are fond of saying, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And yet, because God's word um, 
and his ways already account for human nature and fallenness, our beliefs and doctrines should not change based on the relationships. To the contrary, our understanding of ourselves and others' needs need to be rooted in God's eternal truths. As Tim Keller points out, if people change their views, for example, about homosexuality once they come to know and love homosexual persons, those earlier views were likely defective, perhaps rooted in bigotry rather than right doctrine. Right doctrine must, by its very definition, already take into account both the imperfection and the redeemable nature of our humanity, Mm. along with the command to love. Love it. It's so hard to hold all of these things in balance, but that's (laughs) what we have to do. And of course, thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. We can ask help from the Holy Spirit to do this seemingly impossible thing. Yep. This balance between right doctrine and relationship is particularly pertinent to discipleship. In a recent article on women in the blogosphere, Hannah Anderson and Pack's research indicating that women's, re- women's sources and expressions of power tend to be more relational than those of men. Mm-hmm. That means practicing hospi- hospitable orthodoxy requires recognizing and adjusting for one's own natural tendencies, whatever they are, in order to balance truth and love. So like I know, I am extremely relational. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes will love and, and refrain from truth. Yeah. Because I'm so intent on loving, and I know I have that weakness when I need to tell someone the truth, and it, they are—they need to hear this. This is going to be mm-hmm. life-saving for them. I have to have the courage to share that, regardless of what happens. And there's and, other people that you and I both know that are kind of the opposite, where they are so eager to tell people where they're wrong that they forget that this is a person that they're talking to. And so yeah. I, I, I think I tend to go on actually on both extremes. I will either be the one that I, I certain people in certain times I've built yeah. a relationship with them to where I don't feel like I can speak up. And then other times if you get me run down and tired, I just, um, uh, my old pastor used to call it the, the bifurcation between compassionate compromiser and terrifying truth teller. <laughs> I could be both too, actually, depending on who it is. <laughs> yeah, depending on who it is and basically yeah. how I've been feeling and how, how much of my filter that I have yeah. operating at that particular time. Yeah. <sighs> Self-awareness. Oh, my goodness. This all takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, it does. But it's so rewarding. I'm Mm -hmm. one to say. So number three, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy are not afraid to use words right and wrong, although Mm -hmm. they use them judiciously and lovingly. So she said, I accidentally discovered my own practice of this principle when students and colleagues observed a teaching quirk of mine. If a student offers a wrong answer in classroom discussion, rather than responding with something gently corrective or even affirming, as apparently most teachers do, (laughs) I simply say no and move on to the next raised hand. And yet, because of the hospitable environment I create in my classroom, this no seems only to motivate students to participate more and strive to improve. Realizing something is wrong, what's the appetite for what is right? So there's a context for a no like that, and she has built... She can get away with that, but yeah. I she can has see built how that... a classroom context for this, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you have to have a relationship to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. So in the same way, people who hold orthodox belief in objective and eternal truths and are eager to examine arguments and positions based not on persons' affections or feelings, but rather on truth and reason. 
Where disagreement is found, they engage the actual arguments rather than mm. dismissing uncomfortable ideas with superficial judgments. I we, like that. Engaging yeah. the argument rather than dismissing something that's uncomfortable. Yeah. So when Christian writers or speakers make theological statements, writes Tish Harrison Warren, we have a responsibility to give a specific argument, show our rigorous theological work, elevate the conversation, welcome strong criticism and debate and in doing so help others think and worship better and i will Mm. say one thing that helps with this when you're working you're dealing with the arguments with somebody humor helps injecting humor in certain places Mm -hmm. to kind of lighten the the heaviness yeah sometimes you really need that especially with those those really dense it's like the thing that comes to mind was uh, that that awful debate between mm. justin oh. and um dan barker uh, yeah mm-hmm. dan barker um and the the air conditioning was broken. yeah it was horrible <laughs> and so when john was gonna go up and ask the question i was like you need to lighten the mood because it was like I, I felt like it was about to explode into war it was so hostile in there so john gets up and the first thing he says into the mic he's like well we may all disagree on a lot of things but i think we can all agree that we probably all have a better understanding of the nature of hell <laughs> or so, something along the lines just because it was so hot and just the whole room burst out laughing yeah. and it was smoother from then on out. So a, a good, well-placed joke can do wonders. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think just always remembering when you're dealing with these arguments and ideas that there's a person on the other side of them. Yeah. So, head yes, deal with those arguments head on. Mm-hmm. Push the person, but push them in a humane way. Yes, <laughs> that's yeah. a good way to put it. So when we teach Christian doctrine in the space of the church there too, we have an obligation to say what is right and what is wrong. Hospitality always entails house rules and never means handing over ownership of the house to the guests because they don't know where anything is. (laughs) I know. That would be rude. So number four, this is so key. People who practice hospitable orthodoxy defend but are not defensive. This is like, to me, this is like the thesis of this entire piece right here. (laughs) Or it could be. And this goes back to perfect love casts out fear. Because Mm, defensiveness, we're defensive because we feel attacked and we're afraid. And we don't need to feel fear. Jesus has already won this whole thing. But anyway, those who are rooted in a foundation of objective truth outside of themselves, planted in soil deeper than any particular political or cultural moment, have little reason to be defensive, and I will add, or afraid. Mm, as, yeah. as Henry Nguyen writes in Reaching Out, while society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, you know, it's all a power play. We mm, who are yeah. rooted in the historical teachings of the church are not so. We are rooted in the power of the cross, which is the power of humiliation, shame, and defeat. That is the power of the cross. It it is that should be our mo right there. Yeah, it's upside down from the power of the world. So we should not be afraid. Rather, Nguyen says. I think it's Nguyen. Is that how you say it? Nguyen says. I think so. I'm not sure. um, Rather, Nguyen says we are free to fulfill our call to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Mm. People often ask me how I'm able to respond as graciously as I do when attacked, maligned, or trolled on social media or blogs. The answer is in the freedom orthodoxy offers for things to be not about 
me. Oh, oh, so good. We free <laughs> our egos from this because yeah. Christ showed us the best ego, and that's the ego that is silent before the accusers. Mm-hmm. The best ego is the one that takes on the sins of the world. Yeah. You know? And I, I do want to point out just the idea that um, I think some people hear this and they think, oh, does she not get offended? Are there not things worth defending? <laughs> But the idea is, I, I think back to the scripture verse where it says, in your anger, do not sin. So yeah. it's already presupposing that we're, we can have this anger. But what happens is when we get this righteous indignation for something that might legitimately be like, we're going to feel that if someone is totally bashing our Lord and Savior or just um, using straw man techniques and mischaracterizing Christians or mischaracterizing the Bible, we're going to feel angry. And what happens at that moment that we feel angry is we have to be aware of our anger and then choose to not let all these other things get smuggled in with that anger. We let the flesh kind of get smuggled in and pride and ego and all these other things. And so now this righteous indignation, this righteous anger has turned into unrighteous anger and unrighteous indignation. Um, but it, came, it, it, was, it was birthed from a very real and good place that we Mm -hmm. should be offended Mm -hmm. at certain things but knowing where we go after that is where we have to be very self-aware yeah we have the lord that was silent before his accusers told us to turn the other cheek but he also in anger i just wish i could have seen this and i know actually maybe we shouldn't it it would probably just be astounding but when he was turning all the uh, over all the tables of the money Mm -hmm. changers yeah so you know we have these extremes in our lord so there's a place for anger but um that's also god showing anger you know and he's sinless so (laughs) oh i didn't realize this had i thought we were at the end of the the article i realized there's actually a lot more left (laughs) whoops there's just because yeah there's five and six Okay. Okay. So number five, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy are confident enough to engage the hard questions. So this foundation of eternal and lasting truths offers both the freedom and the pleasure of entertaining hard questions, whether our own or those of others. For believers who care about orthodoxy, hard questions are an opportunity to increase in the maturity and understanding of one's faith. I have seen this personally. I love this. Yeah. As we see in the Gospels, Jesus is an example of someone who not only welcomed honest hard questions as opposed to dishonest trick questions. Nah. Remember, he did not like he those. He shut those down uh, quickly, but he, he was smart enough to know so how to So we do shouldn't it. engage in that. Yeah. Right? I was actually I was actually counseling with a friend of mine online today that was in, engaged was getting really frustrated because she was engaging with this one atheist that we know that doesn't ask honest questions Mm -hmm. that um, I call it chasing. I I call it uh, this person engages what I call the chasing the tail method. It's Mm -hmm. I made this word up. It's basically where they pretend to miscarry. They pretend to misunderstand everything you say so that you're constantly having to redefine what you said. Mm -hmm. And they're not asking honest questions. They're not asking. um, They're not really misunderstanding what you said. They're just, trying to make you have to defend yourself and I do not answer this person at all if they ever they, they've they've tried to bait me into conversations before and no matter how inflammatory I just don't respond at all yeah um yeah because yeah anyway yeah 
and most people that can see through that eventually. So, so as an academic, as an academic, I am encouraged to love hard questions, especially questions mm-hmm. about topics that matter even more than school ber- school books. If we as believers weren't expected to struggle with hard questions beyond the knowledge that saves us, Paul would not have warned us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Number six, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy embrace both openness and exclusivity. 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 I cannot talk. Okay, let me say that again. So number six, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy embrace both openness and exclusivity. (laughs) You say it. Number six, people who practice hospitable orthodoxy embrace both openness and exclusivity exclusivity i cannot say that okay anyway as no one writes in reaching out receptivity (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) as no one says in reaching out (laughs) okay you read the last one because i cannot (laughs) i'm laughing too much okay as no one writes in reaching out receptivity is only one side of hospitality The other side, equally important, is confrontation. Mm. He further explains, space can only be welcoming space when there are clear boundaries, and boundaries are limits between which we define our own position. We are not hospitable when we leave our house to strangers and let them use it any way they want. An empty house is not a hospitable house. Mm. When we want to be really hospitable, we not only have to receive strangers, but also to confront them by an unambiguous presence not hiding ourselves behind neutrality, but showing our ideas, opinions, and lifestyle clearly and distinctly. Receptivity and confrontation are the two inseparable sides of the Christian witness. I love that, um, Mm. not hiding behind neutrality. I love that. So it's like you have this idea of someone that comes to your house. You don't just barge into the guest room or barge mm-hmm. into the guest bathroom, you know, yeah. at any time of the day. You you have boundaries. You you I always when we have people over, I try to keep a low profile. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to feel welcome and feel like they're not intruding on anything, but I also want them to know they know where their room is. They know where the bathroom is. You know, they have walls. You know, there's boundaries in the house. So I do want to say on this side, the idea behind not hiding ourselves behind neutrality. I think there are certain things that are debatable issues that is is okay to remain Mm -hmm. neutral on. So, Mm -hmm. and I think she does a good, good job kind of addressing some of the nuances in here. But I think that still needs to be said that there are certain things it's okay to be neutral. They're minor issues. You don't want to major on the minors. And sometimes uh, people want to major on the minors with you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it's like, okay, well, that's a, that's a peripheral issue. Let's get to these core things. Yeah. Yeah. So again, according to Nguyen, the ultimate purpose of hospitable orthodoxy is not to change people, but to offer them space where change takes place. You're not the one that's actually doing it. You're creating Mm -hmm. the environment for them. So classroom teaching has provided me Um, a model for this. Although change in the form of learning is up to each student, I have a responsibility to create an environment for teaching, leading, and encouraging. In the sphere of social media, where so much discipleship, whether good or bad, (laughs) intentional or not, takes place, I also seek to create a space for teaching, leading, and encouraging. There, too, I serve the Lord and must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents, with gentleness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second Timothy two twenty four through twenty five. 
And that's even talking about what the um, requirements for an elder, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is in the, the elder passages. So this is a responsibility of all believers since we are both hosts and guests within this house of orthodoxy. So she ends with, as I look around the campus where I teach and the country I live in, I see many standing on the precipice of orthodoxy who could tip either way. In the sphere of women's discipleship, in particular, we need clear, strong women's voices to win them back from the edge. Such women, whose voices the church should hear, support, and amplify, are practicing the hospitable orthodoxy that's essential to Christian discipleship. They kindly offer the truth that love requires. They understand that to be orthodox means not changing doctrine, but being changed by it. They are earnest, they, and they earnestly hope and desire for the guests to become once and for all family within the house of God. And I will add oh, to that one of the most important doctrines that we have. You can find this in Matthew 22, um, verse 36. Um, some Sadducees came and asked them, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment the second is like it is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets so mm-hmm. love our neighbor is is an important doctrine that yeah. needs to change us as well and, and continue to change us and how it changes us, us is that we are in these challenging situations where we are challenged yeah. to love yep. not in the echo chamber where we just love all the people that look like us which that's that's you know that's something to do too but to love the people that are totally different from us Mm -hmm. as well absolutely well uh thank you for finding this article and for reading it um and a special thanks to karen swallow Pryor for writing it yay so um let's just close in uh close in prayer Father God, uh, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus and that he was just the perfect example of what it looks like to have this ideological hospitality. Uh, he did not surround himself in an echo chamber. He, he, we see him at times with the tax, collector, tax collectors and the prostitutes, and we see him at other times with the Pharisees. Lord, he did not surround himself with yes men. He did not surround himself with only people who thought like him. Mm. Um, and I pray, God, that... It is exhausting, just, it is exhausting for the women out there that are trying to keep up with, um, you know, soccer schedules and class projects and just trying to to take care of the home, Lord, to also be having this hospitality with people who are ideologically different from how they are. But Lord, I pray that you would empower the women out there, God, that, um, you were just, I, I know, Lord, there's been times when you've given me supernatural strength when I felt exhausted, Lord, mm-hmm. and I pray that the women would not uh, remove themselves from just interacting with the Holy Spirit and asking for that extra strength. When they see an opportunity to love someone who's different from them, I pray that they would seize that opportunity, Lord, but they would be asking you for that help along the way. We pray that you would banish all fear um, in mm. interacting with people who think differently, Lord, we, we just want to embrace this um, ideological diversity, Lord, because we're not going to be right in all cases, and we can always learn from um, from other people, mm-hmm. and we can always learn from each other, Lord. We pray that you would just um, embolden and empower the women to be able to practice this in their own lives, Lord God. We thank you that you never ask us to do anything without saying that you are going to be there with us in uh, providing us the power and the strength and the wisdom. Mm-hmm. 
in order to to walk this this crazy Christian life, Lord, that you've asked us to walk. Uh, we thank you so much. In your name I pray. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together. Oh, 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 oh